Luke chapter 20, everyone. Today we begin what we're calling volume four, the final volume anyway, in the book of Luke. Uh, if this is like your first time here, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Volume one is like, uh, is like the first three chapters, basically, and that's the infancy years of Jesus and, and the herald John the Baptist, who was kind of the, the forerunner to the Messiah, to Jesus. And then when you get to chapter four, all the way into like, you know, a good portion through chapter nine, you have the ministry in Galilee, where Jesus is moving around in, in northern Israel, and uh, he's proclaiming his, his message and his mission, that he's out to give good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captive, sight to the blind. Uh, he's uh, going to give liberty to the oppressed. And he's, he's talking about salvation. He's going to uh, be the best news that anyone could ever receive. And he goes around with his message and his wisdom, with his miracles and healings and his mighty deeds, and as he does that, he starts accruing a huge following. When you get to chapter 9, verse 51, you get to volume 3, and that's going to be where he just kind of sets his, his focus. He sets his face toward Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross. And he's going to take uh, a big zigzag route going all sorts of different places. But as he's marching toward Jerusalem, he's thinking about his destiny on the cross. He starts refining a lot of the teaching that these people need to hear. And, uh, and in doing that, he starts to then let people know that he's going to be delivered over to the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, in capital city of Israel. And uh, they're going to uh, they're going to charge him, and they're going to they're going to murder him. They're going to put him on a cross unjustly. Uh, he'll die on the cross, and then he'll be raised back to life on the third day. Okay, here we are then in volume four, and that's going to be us looking at him walking. He's just walked into Jerusalem, and now what's going to happen from this point out? And he has less than a week. It's only going to be a matter of days. Uh, and traditionally, he comes in on, on Sunday is really where we kind of plot it, and then he gets crucified on a Friday. So really, we're looking at just the weekdays here. And, uh, and on, uh, on, this, this week of, on this last week of his life, we're going to see how the whole conflict with the Jewish leadership comes to a boil. And today, it uh, is really the, the heart of the issue. It's the issue of Jesus' authority. This is where people are saying, like, who do you think you are? Like, where, where, do, you, where do you get this idea that you can say these things and challenge the, the status quo and overturn the tables at our temple and, and tell us how to run our theocracy? Who do you think you are? That's really the, the nature of it, okay? So it's uh, an issue of Jesus' authority, and then in asking uh, you know, where his authority comes from, they're going to then challenge his authority with different little traps that they try to set. The religious leaders of Jerusalem are going to do that, okay? Let me show you the structure real fast. We're going to start with uh, Jesus' authority being questioned in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. We're going to get through all of chapter 20, by the way. Uh, and then second, we're going to see Jesus' authority versus Israel's leaders. That's verses 9 through 18. And then we're going to look at Jesus' authority versus the Roman government, which is verses 19 to 26. And then we'll get Jesus' authority versus theological critics, which is verses 27 to 39. And then finally, we'll get Jesus' authority versus King David's authority, which is the greatest king in Israel's history. That's verses 40 to 47. Okay? So let's start with where does Jesus' authority come from in verses 1 through 7. Okay, this is what it says. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, notice he's preaching the gospel in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, oh, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, then all the people are going to stone us to death, for they are convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, that's, that's the little episode there, and it, it really just ends with... Uh, 
them not being able to answer Jesus, which oftentimes happens. He, he poses the question, uh, they feel stupid, and, uh, and they stay silent because if they say something wrong, they look even worse. So by keeping silent, they at least have plausible deniability where they go, oh, well, we didn't give the wrong answer. We just didn't feel like answering. Well, where does Jesus' authority come from? Because he's teaching a radically different message than what Judaism was teaching in that day. And he clearly opposes uh, the, the system of Judaism that was in place at the time. Uh, and that was noted by in the previous chapter when he walks into the temple and just starts overturning tables and saying, you took this house of prayer and turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus is marched into capital city. He went straight to the most important building, which is the temple. It's the most important building to the nation, most important building to the religion. Uh, and uh, what did he preach in verse 1? He didn't preach social justice. He preached the gospel. He didn't preach some kind of civil reform. He preached the gospel. He preached the good news of salvation. Now, what is the gospel if the cross didn't happen yet? You realize that, right? Like, where he's at chronologically, he hasn't yet died on the cross. And people don't realize, even though he's kind of predicted it to them, they don't realize he's going to die on a cross. So what is the gospel? When it says he preached the gospel, when we preach the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, we want to talk about the cross and how Jesus died for your sins. But he's not saying that yet. So what is this? Well, he preached against sin and against hypocrisy and against judgment and against, heaven and, uh, against hell and about heaven. He preached righteousness being a heart thing, not a behavior thing. These are all things that he's preached throughout the, the book of Luke up to this point. And it's, it's, uh, it's described as preaching the gospel. It's uh, peace with God, being poor in spirit, uh, being a steward of your money and resources for the Lord, love for sinners, the kingdom as a people before it, before it becomes a government, uh, false prayers and religiousness, pride, persecution, suffering, trust the word, uh, the need to deny yourself, take up your own death like a cross and follow Jesus and follow Jesus alone. He has a lot of different topics that he talks about, and it's all kind of umbrellaed under preaching the gospel. It's the idea of no longer living the way that you used to, and now living the way that he calls you to. That's repentance and faith, right? So all of this we know as truth and life, but this is an all-out assault on the entire system of Judaism in that day, because what Jesus taught was completely opposite to the way that they set up their system of, of sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies in order to earn your way to heaven. They had, uh, they had misunderstood and misled the people of Israel over what the, the scriptures uh, said about, uh, you know, about these sacrifices and things. They missed the heart of God. And they led the people the wrong way. And that's why the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders team up against Jesus. They realize that now he's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their authority. And those are, uh, by the way, there's chief priests, scribes, elders, and they're disagreeing factions in Israel's leadership. It's, um, you know, it's like if the, the Republicans and the Democrats got together to team up against the Green Party or something, you know? It'd be like someone's a threat and, you know, like someone rises up out of nowhere that you never would have expected to challenge the power that was in place. What gives Jesus the right to tell the priests how to run temple that they've been in charge of for centuries? He has no formal training. Uh, he's a thorough outsider. He's not even from Jerusalem. He's, he's from the country, you know, up north. Jesus of Nazareth, uh, what right does he have to make these religious claims? Jesus largely ignored the entire religious system of Judaism in his day. He didn't care about the Sanhedrin. He didn't seek approval from the chief priests. Uh, he prophesied many times without giving some kind of a, a disclaimer where he says, you know, thus says the Lord. He just says, but I tell you, and he speaks with one who has divine authority. And here are the religious leaders who love to be loved and love to be respected and admired, and Jesus exposed them as cowards and fools and phonies. So this is the ultimate issue. He is challenging all the Jewish re religious leaders. Does he have the right? Does he have the truth? 
If he operates from God, they should listen to him. If he operates from any other authority, they should kill him for blasphemy. That's the issue. And this is a sad conversation, really, if you uh, see with Jesus and the, and the religious leaders here, because uh, it's kind of a final declaration that Jesus has nothing more to say to these leaders. Like, they'll keep having conversations because they're, they're going to keep trying to trap him, but he's kind of done trying to get them in on the good news. They are so set against him that he... He kind of just says, this is it. Now, this idea of authority is, a, is a, a, an idea that's packed full of significance for a Jew. It denotes permission, power, privilege, rule, control, domination. It's, it, it's a big word. In uh, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And that's, that's, just not, that's not just that he has the right to tell people what to do, but it also means he is capable of rerouting the laws of nature, heaven and earth. He is capable of it. He has the power. He has the authority to redo nature and to control creation. He has that authority. He has that power. It means he's absolutely sovereign. Jesus doesn't have to answer to anyone outside himself because he's made it very, very clear that he's divine. Jesus had the authority to preach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 29, correcting what's sin and what's real righteousness and faith. Jesus had the authority to forgive sins in Luke chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, which everyone knew is something that only God can rightly do. And here's Jesus doing it, saying, I have the authority to do that. Jesus had authority to dispense death and exercise judgment in sending people to eternal hell. You get that in John chapter 5, verse 27, Revelation 1, verse 18. Uh, Jesus had authority to give life and salvation. That's John chapter 17, verse 2. He had authority to lay down his own life and take up his own life again. That's John chapter 10, verse 18. Time and time again throughout Luke's uh, depiction of the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus exercise authority over nature, sickness, demons, over Moses and Elijah, who are in heaven, where does Jesus get this authority? If you track through the book, the answer becomes very, very obvious, from heaven. Because no one on earth can do any of the things that Jesus does. So who gave it to him? God. He is, uh, he's granted this authority by God. He works by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is in nature God. But instead of explaining himself with this massive question of, you know, where do you get this authority from? Who gave it to you? Instead of explaining himself, Jesus responds with his own question. He asks them uh, about John the Baptist's ministry. Right? Like, where did John the Baptist get his authority? Um, that's a br brilliant question because John the Baptist's roots were just as obscure as Jesus' roots. Just like Jesus, John the Baptist had no formal training. He too preached repentance for all. And all the people of Israel acknowledged the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus links their, their two ministries together. He says, like, we're, we're kind of hand in hand, right? If you believe in John's ministry, he was pointing to me, and so you must believe in my ministry, public already made a judgment about John. They said, yeah, John is a prophet from God. He has broken the 400 years of silence where we had no prophets. He's here. He's a prophet from God, and we know it. They had, a, they had strong opinions on that, and John has already been accepted by the people as a prophet, uh, and John and Jesus are a bundle. And so Jesus puts the, the Jewish leaders into this corner here, and he says, what do you think about John? Go ahead, say it in front of everyone. The character of the leadership emerges, you know, the, the Israel's leadership, their character emerges as they talk among themselves. They discuss together not the truth, but they discuss appearances, right? They don't believe John the Baptist was from God. They don't believe that. But they won't say it because they're afraid of what the crowd will do. That right there tells you that these religious leaders don't have the courage that the prophets had. 
because the prophets were willing to die for the truth. Jesus is willing to die for the truth. The prophets are unwilling to die, and so they're okay going with lies. They certainly had an opinion. They, they believed that Jesus got his power from Beelzebul, from Satan. So then uh, where did John the Baptist get his power? From, from Satan? Well, they can't say that. So the leaders don't answer. So Jesus doesn't answer. Uh, you know, they say, oh, we don't know. So Jesus uh, is like, okay, well, then we're done here. Jesus said enough. He's done enough for three years to prove his authority anyway. The fact that the leaders don't answer is kind of Luke's indictment of the leadership. They're not heroes. They're cowards. Right? Their motive is displayed. It's because they're afraid. Whatever authority they pretend to wield, whatever fear of God they claim, is forfeited by their self-serving fear of man, fear for their lives. So then it's the issue of Jesus' authority. And even though they have only reasons to affirm the authority of Jesus, to affirm that Jesus is from heaven, they refuse to, and they'll adopt a lie because they're self-interested. And because of that, Jesus then gives this parable to hint at his death and to, uh, and to put the, the leadership of Israel on display, and he's going to uh, make, a, make a judgment call on them. Okay, so we're going to get to Jesus' authority versus Israel's leadership in verses uh, 9 through 18. You're going to see Jesus give this parable against Israel's leadership. Verse 9, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, when they, the people, heard this, when the people heard this, they said, surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All right, let's stop there. This parable comes from, uh, it's kind of based on Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, particularly verses 1 through 7. It's called the Song of the Vineyard. Okay, um, Matthew 21 and Mark 12 also tell this, and, and they quote Isaiah as well. The, uh, this, or they quote Isaiah. Luke didn't quote Isaiah because he has a Gentile audience, but Mark, uh, Matthew and Mark do. Uh, they quote Isaiah because in Isaiah 5, it talks about Israel as a vineyard, you know, the covenant people of God as a vineyard. And so the way that this is going, the way that Jesus is framing this parable is kind of piggybacking off of that metaphor, using the same metaphor to stay consistent with it. Uh, and, uh, and so it becomes the closest parable that might be like an allegory, like a point-for-point -point allegory. It's the closest one that might do that. Whether or not it does, I don't think you could be staunch on it. But the vineyard would seem to be Israel, or at least the covenant people of God, or, or the, uh, the way of salvation, the, the people that get to be with God forever and ever. That would be the vineyard. The owner would be God. The son, the beloved son, would be Jesus. I think you can put all that together. Who are the tenants? The tenants are the ones that tend to the vineyard and make sure it's in good condition. That would be the leadership. That's the, the leadership of Israel. And who are the servants that this owner of the vineyard keeps sending to the tenants? That's the prophets. And if you, if you watch the Old Testament, that's what happens. Like, you know, the, the tenants of Israel, the, the religious leaders, they keep leading the, the vineyard astray. And so God keeps sending these prophets to go and bring them back to something good, but they keep abusing and killing the prophets. God owns Israel. 
And the religious leaders, like wicked tenants, have taken over, and they will not listen to the servants that are being sent to them. God sends prophets, but the tenants abuse and kill the prophets. Then he sends his son, and they're going to murder his son. And these tenants are not owners. They, they kill the beloved son, the, the agapetas, the, the beloved son. Uh, same word uh, comes up in Luke 3.22 and Genesis 22.2 and Matthew 17.15. It just comes up in these key moments where it very much means Jesus. It even goes back to that, that Genesis moment with Abraham and Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, your beloved son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. There's, there's a lot of tie-in on that if you're studying theology. In the Talmud, for tenants to own a, a vineyard, what would have to happen is uh, the owner of the vineyard dies and there's no one to inherit it. There's no heir. So if three years pass by and there's no heir, then it would go to the tenants. So it seems like that's what the tenants are saying here. We'll kill the heir. Then eventually the master will die. The owner will die and no one to inherit this vineyard. So it becomes ours which is a stupid thought because uh, that logic doesn't really pan out if you murder the heir. So they'd have to do it in secret and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. The logic of these tenants is foolish, uh, and that's what happens when you're in sin like that, right? Blindness sees strange things in the dark. So they just think, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to kill the heir, and then we'll get the vineyard. Now, uh, in verse 15, Jesus asks the, you know, this Question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to these tenants? What's the owner going to do? How will he respond? In verse 16, he answers his own question. He'll destroy those tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. So it's like Jesus asked a question, then he answered his own question, right? What's the owner going to do? He's going to destroy those tenants and give away the vineyard. But in Matthew 21, when, when Matthew uh, gives his version of the story, he gives a more full account where he says that Jesus asked the question, what do you think the, the owner is going to do? The crowd answers, and then Jesus answers. So here's what the crowd answered uh, in Matthew 21, verse 41, if we've got it up. Uh, they said to Jesus, the crowd said to Jesus, he will, uh, he will put those wretches those tenants, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Right? When Jesus goes, what do you think the owner's going to do to these wicked tenants? The people, they suggest the answer. They're like, oh yeah, that, that owner is going to take those wretches, give them a miserable death. Then he'll take the vineyard and give it to other tenants who will be loyal. That makes sense, right? So Jesus and the crowd... They are in agreement. Kill the wicked tenants. Get rid of them. So then like, you know, in the Luke passage, it says that uh, when the crowd heard this, they said, surely not. Surely not. And that sounds like they're disagreeing. But I, so I don't want you to be thrown off by that. They're not like, no, the owner shouldn't kill those tenants. Surely not. That's not what they're saying. When they're saying surely not, uh, it, the... Like the way the, the Greek goes, it goes, not be not. You know, so it, it, they're like, oh, may that never be. That's kind of the, the idea. Like, I, like that, that should never happen. I hope that never occurs. Because they're kind of catching on to this idea that Jesus is talking about the religious leaders. In fact, uh, you'll see in verse 19 that the religious leaders know that he's talking about the religious leaders. So it's becoming very felt. It's awkward in the room, basically, that he's like, yeah, shouldn't the owner then throw away and, and kill the miserable uh, wretches that are taking care of the vineyard? Right? And then the people are like, oh, surely not. <laughs> you know, like, may it never be. Not be not. Right? That's kind of how they answer. So the, uh, this idea, Jesus is going to kill those tenants and give it to others. It could either mean he's just going to kill Jerusalem or Israel and then, and then like change to a different people altogether, the Gentile nations. That some people see it that way. I think what he's saying is he's going to kill the, the Jewish leadership, like the Pharisees and the scribes, the chief priests, etc. And he's going to give leadership over God's saved people. To a different group of leaders, like mm, these 12 guys that are following him around, that are the new leadership he's been training up. A new 12 to replace the old 12. 
So get this, Jesus quotes, um, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. Right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. What a weird verse to pick. It's, a, it's just a strange, like you've changed away from the vineyard metaphor and, and, uh, and now you're talking about something else and it's got a different metaphor, it's got a different skin to it. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. And that verse comes from Psalm 118 and it's talking about how God provides salvation and for anyone who rejects that way of salvation, uh, they're going to get into some serious trouble. They're, they're going to reject the way of salvation and that's going to come and crush them. Right? That's, uh, that's how it is with Jesus. Jesus is the provided way of salvation. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the provided way from God, and people will reject him. The, uh, the stone, uh, sorry, the, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's become the most important thing. So that's kind of what, what's going on here. But what's crazy to me is not only was Jesus quoting this psalm, if you were to back up to just the yesterday, you know, the, the, the day before this happened, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem triumphantly on the, on the donkey, with all these people putting palm branches down saying, Hosanna, they started quoting this psalm as well. Look at uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 38 from last week. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they were quoting this psalm as well. It comes from the same psalm, 118. And they were quoting that. And, uh, and it, that, that psalm says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, blessed is the one. But the way they say it, they go, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they made this little edit to it to assert that Jesus is king. These crowds were convinced that Jesus wasn't just a guy. He wasn't just gifted. He wasn't just a really cool person. He was the king. And they already had a king. They had a Caesar. And they had a high priest. They had all sorts of authority figures. But when they're just like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that, there's like a, uh, that's the highest title you could say. He's not a king that comes in the name of Rome. He's not a king that comes in the name of, uh, of Israel. He, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of Yahweh, he is Yahweh. So here is, uh, here's this crowd from the yesterday in chapter 19. And they're, they're all singing, blessed is this king, the king that is above all other kings, the king of kings. Blessed is the king who comes in a name that's higher than any other name, the name above all names. Uh, if you remember that, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, people are singing, uh, singing that song. Now, I'm going to give you the, the full quote, okay? Uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builder, builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, L-O-R-D capital letters. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. The irony is that they were celebrating the Savior, and yet they didn't think to examine themselves with the rest of the psalm, wondering, are we going to reject the way of salvation. These people who even sang that song will be the ones to reject Jesus in just a few days after his crucifixion. You know, something I want you to realize is Jesus is walking around for three years. He's doing all these teachings and miracles and mighty deeds. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons and made the lame walk, blind see, deaf hear, mute speak, all that stuff, right? He's given incredible messages. He's reached out to lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, all that stuff. He's done all of that. Huge crowds are following him. They don't fit in doors anymore when he go when they go outdoors on the beach he has to get out on a on a boat because there's massive crowds he feeds crowds consisting of 
5,000 men and then however many women and children. And then another crowd over in a different area, 4,000 men plus however many women and children. He has accrued a massive following. And then after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, he, uh, he goes over to meet his disciples, like the ones who actually believe in him. How many are left? 120. Huge crowds, thousands of people follow Jesus, saying, blessed is the king. Only 120 actually believed. That's scary. They didn't examine themselves. They didn't even realize they were going to reject the king. And Jesus knew that uh, this was going to happen. You know, the, the rejection was prophesied. It doesn't stop God's plan. It just means doom for the rejectors. That's, that's what that means. So Jesus remarks about this psalm, right? He, he, he's, he said uh, the whole thing about the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, and he makes a remark about that. He goes, anyone who falls on this stone will break, and if this stone falls on you, you'll break. Anyone who opposes the capstone will break, whether you come against it or it comes against you. If you oppose that stone, you'll break. Whoever opposes Jesus as Savior will break. You cannot stand against the cornerstone. You must stand upon the rock of your salvation. How do you think the Pharisees react to this parable and warning? Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. You get another remark about how they feared the people. They wanted to kill him right then and there because they knew he was humiliating them and he was pronouncing doom and judgment on them. The parable was an attack on Jewish leadership. It was Jesus and Jesus' authority versus Israel's leadership. And Jesus just said he was going to throw them out, have them killed, give Israel and the kingdom and all God's promises to someone else. And that's exactly right. Jerusalem will fall. The 12 apostles will establish the church. Gentile nations will get grafted into Israel's promises until a time when God, by his grace, also redeems ethnic Israel. And then Jesus returns in power and glory, Romans 11. So that's that. Jesus has, has uh, cornered the leadership. He's made a, a judgment against them. And so now they're going to sit there trying to do all these little traps against him. So they send the scribes and chief priests, uh, and they try to pit Jesus and get him in trouble with the government. Okay, Jesus' Jesus's authority versus the Roman government, verses 19 to 26. Let's start in verse, uh, sorry, verse 20 to 26. Why did I say 19? 20 to 26. Um, let's start in verse 20. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor and so they asked him teacher we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of god now they don't mean that right you realize that right they're they're saying that to butter him up teacher we know that you speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality but you truly teach the way of god is it lawful for us to give tribute to caesar or not so basically, should we pay taxes to Rome or not? We're God's people. We're supposed to be a free nation. Uh, we're not supposed to be under Roman rule. Should we pay taxes or not? And they ask this, by the way, in front of people like, you know, who work for the government and stuff. And they're going to be like Herodians there. and They're going to be soldiers, etc. So if, uh, it, it puts them in an awkward position because if he says, no, we shouldn't have to pay taxes... Then there are a bunch of witnesses that hear that, right? Like, no, we don't owe Rome a thing. If he says that, then they can go to Rome and uh, they can go to the Roman authorities and be like, insurrectionist. This guy's trying to incite some kind of a rebellion. This, he's, he's causing trouble. He's saying that we shouldn't even submit to Rome and we don't want that, right? They could play that card. Or if he goes, yes, we should pay taxes to Rome, we should totally pay taxes to Rome. They are our rightful rulers. If he says that, he's some kind of Roman nationalist, and then they go, you're not even really a Jew. You don't believe that God 
uh, set his people free. So it puts him in an awkward position. It's, it's, it's a pretty good trap to try to get Jesus' authority in trouble by the Roman government to see if he sweats a little bit. Either answer that he gives would be a wrong answer. You know, it'll upset one side, one side or another. If, if, he say, if he says pay taxes, it'll upset the Jews. If he says don't pay taxes, it'll upset the Romans. And just so you know, by the way, uh, this issue of paying taxes to Rome is not like a petty issue. It's a huge thing because Jews already had a tax system called tithe, okay? Tithe is different from offering. Tithe, 10% of your offering went to go fund the priesthood because they were a theocracy. It went to go fund the priesthood. And then another 10% went to go fund all the national feasts. So every year you gave 20%. Everyone thinks tithe means 10%. It does, but you end up giving a lot more than, than 10%. You give 10% for the priest, then you give another 10% to uh, the national feast, and then every third year, you give 10% to, uh, to welfare, to feed the poor. And that, that gets taken out of your thing, so that's 23.3% on average every year. And then on top of that, if you were like a landowner and you had fields and stuff, you can't, you can't take the fruit from the sides of the, the edges of the field. Or if someone's gleaning, or sorry, if someone's harvesting and they drop stuff, you're not allowed to go back and pick that up. So you kind of have additional losses to go feed the poor and the needy. So really, this is all an involuntary amount of money that's given to the, the government of Israel. That's about 25%. That was Israel's system of taxation. It's not offering. Offering is a free will gift to God, right? So, and they already had that in Israel. You could give your taxation stuff, your tithing stuff, and then you can give a free will offering. So the church, when we give offering, that's a free will offering. It is not tithing. Don't use that word as, uh, as offering on Sundays or else you, you really start to me- mess up your understanding of the Old Covenant, New Covenant. Okay, you don't care. 25% goes to Israel, but then Rome comes in, owns the place, and says you have to pay poll tax, income tax, and all that stuff. They had to give up to 30, sometimes over 33% of their income. So now they're giving close to 60% of their, of their income to something, right? Because 25% goes to Israel, and then like a third of it goes to Rome, that hurts, man. Like, you, you get your paycheck and watch two-thirds of it get taken out. Okay? So, so they're like, do we have to pay a third of our stuff to Rome? That's a huge deal. Would you like to keep a third of your paycheck? Probably. Okay, so they ask Jesus this. They frame this question to him. Um, they see what he's going to say. Verse 23. Jesus perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, okay, show me a denarius, which is one of their coins. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, okay, well then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Right? Oh, he did it again. (laughs) That was a bad day for these guys, right? Uh, it's a familiar answer to us if you've been in church for a while, right? This, this passage kind of comes up a lot. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's, right? In that moment, uh, for us, it's very familiar, but in that moment, for them, it was very unexpected. They're like, hey, hold on, that's weird. He kind of said, yeah, pay taxes, but he wasn't saying, he wasn't stating some kind of uh, idea that like Rome is rightfully in rulership. He just kind of said, this coin belongs to him. And there's a lot mixed into this, okay? Because he didn't really pick a side. He wasn't supporting Roman rule. Give the government what the government requires. That's part of religious duty. A denarius would have the, ins- the face of, uh, of Caesar on it, you know, kind of like our coins. They have the face of like a president on it, right? Uh, it would have the face of, of Caesar on it, and it had an inscription. A denarius in that day had an inscription. It said, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. So the Jews would carry these coins in their pockets. There was Roman sovereignty written all over it, and they're using these coins to do their commerce and stuff. They're participating in the economy and in the business and in the government stuff. God allowed that government over Israel. And so Jesus is saying, okay, since God has allowed them to be here and, uh, and you're participating in their system, submit to its taxation. That response is not pro-Rome. It's just honest, practical, cautious, and peaceful. 
It keeps Israel out of trouble. It is a hardship, but it protects the people, and it honors God. Jesus himself isn't submitting to Caesar as his king. He's simply not inciting insurrection since he lives in Rome's territory. He'll still be accused of inciting insurrection in just a few days uh, from, from this point, but right now his response is one of peace. His authority remains a threat to the Jewish leaders. He hasn't buckled under the, the fear of, of Roman power. So now they try again with a different faction of Jewish leaders. It's Jesus' authority versus theological critics. These theological critics, right? Uh, Jesus has, if you know, he has greater popularity than the Jewish leaders do right now. And he isn't threatened by the Roman government, so the next attack comes at his theology. If they can find uh, a hole in his theology where he looks stupid in how he does his philosophy or his reasoning, if he, how he kind of works things out, if they can find him looking dumb, they'll expose him as a fool. So they send Sadducees. Okay, if you know, uh, verse 27, we'll just put that up real fast. Uh, verse 27, then there came to him some Sadducees. Sadducees uh, are, are this really interesting group of people in Israel's leadership. They only believed that uh, the first five books of the Old Testament were actually God's word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they believed was actually God's word. All the other stuff, they're like, nah, that's just oral tradition. And they dismissed it all. They said, these are the only five books that are authoritative. And because of that, a lot of their theology was missing. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They think this is the only life you live. That's the end. This is all that matters. And so they, they ended up being very, uh, very much in league with existing governments. Uh, they became very wealthy, wealthy. They were the worldliest of the, of the Jewish leadership. And they were in stark contrast to Pharisees who were separatists. So here are the Sadducees, who are the most uh, cooperative and embracing of Roman rule, because they're like, this is all you got. You know, just take what you can get. The Pharisees were like, no, 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 no. We're, we have nothing to do with Rome and stuff like that. And Pharisees believed in resurrection, in an afterlife, in the age to come. Sadducees did not. So it's, it's crazy that they send Sadducees. Like Sadducees and Pharisees are teaming up on this. That's how much they hate Jesus. They are opposites. But they send, send, Jesus, uh, send Jesus these Sadducees to, to try to trap him. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, if there were seven brothers, the first took a wife and died without children, then second, and the third took her, and Likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So the Sadducees think that this is a cool question to ask. Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, says verse 27, right? They don't believe in resurrection. This is the only life you live. That's it. That's the end. So they ask this question, right? Now, for us... Marriage is like an easy thing. We could just go, till death do you part, right? So if, if she had a husband and he died, and then she married someone else, we'd say, well, yeah, when the husband died, then till death do you part. So it's not a hard question for us. But at, at that time, they didn't have that like, super quick express answer, right? Uh, whose wife will she be? The woman had seven husbands. All seven husbands died, and she just remarried you know, seven, seven different husbands, um, all of them died. She was, uh, she's now in heaven when she dies. So who, do, who is she married to? And it relates to this old custom of leveret marriage that I can explain, but it doesn't have any effect on the purpose or outcome of the scene. Okay? Uh, this is a common question, by the way, by Sadducees. Sadducees often ask this question to try to frustrate Pharisees and the scribes and chief priests that weren't part of the Sadducee theology. They would oftentimes ask this question because, you know, the other side had trouble answering it. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Or like the sons of this life, people today, marry and are given in marriage. Verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead... Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, 
because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, interestingly, Jesus very explicitly chooses a side on this one. He goes, no, resurrection's real, and you missed it, right? Resurrection is real. He affirms that there's a resurrection. His answer means that the Sadducees are wrong, just dead wrong. There is a resurrection. You die. You go to heaven. When Jesus returns, you get a new body. You're with him. Resurrection body, right? You're sons of the resurrection. You're people characterized by the resurrection. You're identified by that. You're identified by being sons of God. You're identified by him. You're sons of the resurrection. You're identified by that. We marry in this life, but after this life, he says, when you're in your resurrection life, you don't marry. You will not marry, and, uh, and you can't die either. When you get your resurrection body, you can't die. Just like the angels, you can't die. Verse 35 mentions that believers are, it describes believers as those who are worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection. Worthy. That. That's a, we wouldn't use that word worthy very often. You know? We would never say we're worthy of salvation. We, we oftentimes state the truth. We are unworthy. But uh, Jesus will use that word worthy in like Matthew 10 when, when this story is going on uh, in Matthew. Uh, he'll use it, uh, sorry, in Matthew 10 when, when he's talking, sending out like the disciples to go on a mission trip. Uh, he'll use the same word worthy as what's happening in this passage. He'll say when the house is worthy, meaning... They are accepting of your message and willing to supply you and help you go out and, and do your evangelism thing. They're on board. They honor God. They're cooperative. That's worthy, okay? So the word worthy doesn't mean that you've earned salvation. It just means you're on board with the gospel. You're a believer. All right. Jesus keeps going on about the concept of resurrection just to make sure the Sadducees are going like, to get it in their heads that there's a resurrection. He just... He keeps pushing this, this idea. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Which is, that's the books that they would read, right? But the de- uh, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed that. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Right? He, he did it again. Right? Uh, what's going on here? The, the Sadducees only recognize the first five books. So Jesus is like, even in those five books, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is talking to a bush, he's like, God spoke from, the, from this, this bush that appeared to be on fire. And God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, those three names are people who died centuries before Moses ever lived. And God's like, I'm the God of them. Not I was the God of them. I am the God of them, which means that they are still around somewhere. They're with me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, even the way that God talks about them, they're not dead and gone. They're alive with him in heaven, awaiting the day of resurrection. So here the Sadducees they don't know what to say to that. And then some of the scribes, uh, which probably weren't of the Sadducee section, uh, they're like, Jesus has spoken well. You know, they're agreeing with them because they fought with the Sadducees on the issue of resurrection. Jesus just picked a side. And they're like, Jesus is right on this one. You know, they're, now they're teaming up with Jesus in a weird way. Maybe they liked how Jesus uh, made the Sadducees feel stupid. But uh, either way, all the sides of the Jewish leadership, they're like, okay, we just got to leave this guy alone because he's making us look really bad. Every time we try to talk to him, we look more stupid. So everybody just stop talking. You know, that's, that's like their, their conclusion. So now Jesus has been on the defense, right? Like everybody's been trying to trap him and, and, and throw all this stuff at him. So then he's going to, again, flip it where then he goes on the offense. He asks them a question, just like in the beginning he did, right? They're like, where do you get this authority? He's like, well, where did John get this authority? He could flip it, right? He's going to do that right now. He's going to flip it again, and it is, he's going to pit Jesus' authority versus King David's authority. That's verses 41 to 47, which takes us to the end of the chapter. It says in verse 41, But Jesus said to them, the Jewish leaders, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's a weird passage, right? This comes from Psalm uh, 110. And David writes of the Lord, meaning God, Yahweh, the Lord speaking to his, one of David's descendants, right? The Lord said to my descendant, but he doesn't say to my descendant. He goes, the Lord said to my Lord. And uh, Jesus is like, why would David refer to one of his descendants as his Lord? Because if you understand the, the family hierarchy of basically every ancient culture, the older generation always has authority over the younger generation. So a grandfather has authority over a father, has authority over a son, right? So th that's how it would go. So here's David, and the Messiah will be born from his line. It'll be a son of David, a descendant of David. And David describes his descendant as my Lord. You know, God said to my Lord instead of God said to my descendant. And Jesus is like, why would he do that? Why would David call his son or his descendant, my Lord? Why would he submit to a lower ranking than his own descendant? And the implication there is basically to say, because the Messiah that comes from David's line will also come from some other line where he is of higher birth rank than David. It's a weird concept, and uh, you know, it's, it's hard to... Um, to unpack that, Matthew 22 also tells of this moment. It says that nobody knew how to answer Jesus because they're all sitting there scratching their heads. I like how the Apostle Paul unpacks it in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 3, uh, he says, Concerning his son, namely Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, so physically was a descendant of David, and was, to, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the, spirit, uh, uh, to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is what he says. He goes, physically, yeah, He came from David, so He is a son of David. Spiritually, by the Spirit of holiness, spiritually, He's a son of God. And you have the proof of that because He was raised from the dead. And, and no one else had to raise Him. Right? You know, Jesus has raised people from the dead, but then they would die again. But Jesus, he, wrote, he was raised from the dead, and he stayed alive, and he remains alive. So uh, he's saying, see, he is a son of David, so that would make him inferior to David on a physical human level. But he's also a son of God. He is the son of God, and that makes him infinitely greater in rank than David. So since none of the Jewish leaders uh, knew what to do, they, you know, they're trying to trap Jesus. They couldn't answer him. Jesus goes into full offensive mode, verse 45 in Luke 20. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Did you get that? In the hearing of all the people. So everybody listen up. And then he says just to his disciples, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He says they're doomed. Don't listen to them. They pretend to be godly. They pretend to be holy. And yet, inside, they're not afraid to victimize the powerless to serve themselves. It's a shorter indictment of the way that Jesus came after the Jewish leaders in Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 52. But he's attacking their pride, and he accuses them of taking advantage of widows and abusing their responsibility you know, as, uh, as legal arbiters for the poor. These are men who pretended to be godly, but they're hypocrites. They victimize the powerless. They receive greater condemnation in hell, which is interesting. Hell has like different degrees of punishment. That kind of like, like at that point, then you kind of have to stop because uh, Jesus will go on about, about the condemnation of Israel's leadership. And he'll, Luke will even feature a story about a widow in the next few verses. But uh, we kind of have to cut it off here, right? So we're out of time. By what authority is Jesus doing all these things? Well, it's the, the authority of heaven. It's a divine authority. It's an authority that even David recognized as greater than himself. 
that Jesus' authority, the Messiah's authority, is greater than King David's authority. David knew that his descendant, the Messiah, would also be divine. He knew that, that there would be something very, very special about him. Jesus' authority is the authority of God. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. So let's, let's kind of wrap this up here, okay? Let's dwell on this issue of the authority of Jesus, which is the heart of the issue for Israel at this time. And frankly, it is the heart of the issue for everyone all the time. The authority of Jesus is the issue. See, uh, don't, don't fall into this pattern of thinking that salvation is just believing the information about Jesus. That, uh, see, when we say believe, we think it just means intellectual agreement, you know? So we just go, oh, as long as you believe, you're saved. And we think, as long as you think that the, the stories are true, you're saved. That's not it, right? Which is why James 2 says, even demons believe that stuff, but they're not saved, right? They, they know that all the stories about Jesus are true. They know it. So believing in that sense, intellectual agreement is not actually the same thing as saving faith. As you read through Luke, uh, when you look at saving faith, it really is comprised of the act of repentance from sin, saying, I got nothing to offer. And it's trust in Jesus, saying he is the only answer. That's saving faith. That's where uh, you don't just believe the stories, but you respond to those stories. You respond to the information, not just agreeing with it, but saying, okay, yeah, I surrender everything. I give my life to that. I now live in pursuit of all that God has called me to be. And I'm just going to do everything the way that he, he told me to because I trust that he has a better way. Many people believe Jesus is Savior in terms of the information, they believe he did the miracles, he died on the cross, but not everyone submits to him, right? Not everyone repents of their way of living and lives as he calls them. Remember, thousands of people saw Jesus do all the miracles, cast out those demons, heard all his teaching. They all nodded their heads and said, all of that's true, but they didn't all give their lives to him. They did not all fall down and worship him. They just said, but I think it's true. And they thought that was it. We as people, in our human nature, challenge Jesus' authority all the time. It's just kind of our instinct. It's always matching up and seeing who truly is Lord or what truly is Lord, right? Jesus' authority was matched up in this chapter against relig religious leadership, against the government, and against theological criticism. That's every generation. Religious leaders, even in churches today, they'll have access to the gospel, but there's still this resistance to Jesus' authority, right? Who's the final authority on religious traditions and experiences? Who's the final authority? Like, how many times did Jesus ever say you need to speak in tongues? Never. And yet some churches will turn that into a thing. How many times did Jesus say you have to trust in this other document outside of God's word? Never. And yet religious leaders might turn that into a thing. Right? If something is not biblically enforced, if Jesus hasn't, hasn't endorsed it and said this is the truth, uh, why, would a, why would a religious leadership do that? Why would they hold to certain traditions and certain experiences and say you have to have this? Who's the final authority on leading the congregation? on using your rank to control them and threatening them with guilt and fear of wrath if you don't do what I say. Right? There's, a, uh, there's a, a huge caution that we need to have against the religious leadership that goes far outside the boundaries of what Jesus was talking about. There's a, a temptation for religious leadership, for church leaders, to think that their, their rank gives them the, the right to compel you to do something sinful, dangerous, irresponsible, unkind. And they think, well, but you have to listen to me because I'm the leader. We pit our, uh, our faith against the authority of government too. I mean, that's, that's not hard to, to even demonstrate. Christians waver today on, uh, on if Jesus has the truth about human nature, if Jesus has the truth about God's will, if Jesus has the truth about society, uh, you know, versus what society and social sciences says. For instance, like, who has the final authority on gender or on sexuality or on marriage or on parenting? 
or on when life begins, or on what we're allowed to do if we don't want that life to begin. Who has the authority on that? Right? It's, it's, it's not hard to, to see that, like, okay, we go, I know the Bible says that, but what if, and then we bring up some scenario that we go, in this particular scenario, I think the Bible needs to take a back seat. Jesus needs to get out of my way because he's kind of interfering with my lordship. Who's the final authority on what we vote? On what we aim for as a society? On what we teach in our schools? Right? Who's, who's the final authority on that? And you see Christians today wavering on it. Even with theological criticism, right? Like people who will take parts of the Bible, but not all the Bible. They'll just throw out parts that they don't want, stuff like that, you know? Christians today throw out portions of the Bible like the Sadducees did. Sadducees only held to certain books, you know? Some people only hold to certain books. Some people uh, won't admit that. But they ignore huge portions of the Bible. Who's the final authority on how God created the earth? Like, is Genesis 1 actually part of the Bible or not? Who's the final authority on how death entered the world? Is Genesis 3 part of the Bible or not? Who's the final authority on how old people live and how old mankind is? Is Genesis 5 part of the Bible or not? Genesis 10? Who's the final authority on church leadership? On what kind of person can be a leader in the church? On what it takes to be a leader in the church? From where do you get those principles? If you go, oh yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, but in our society, who's the final authority? A lot of these issues are so ancillary to the core gospel, but somehow people go around having this opinion on these, which is very revealing of their opinion about Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? Is he just a man or is he God? Is he the king of kings? Or is he just a very helpful teacher that you'll listen to sometimes, but then you also like this other stuff that the world has told you? Is he the master of your life without exemptions? If you and Jesus disagree, who's right? And what will you do about it? Do you yield to the authority of Jesus or do you expect him to yield to yours? That exposes if you repent or if you expect him to repent. The authority of Jesus is not from this world. Where does he get this authority? He gets it from above. It's divine. It's from heaven. Who gave it to him? God the Father. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Do you yield to him? Not just your Savior. Is he Lord? Is he your Lord? Do you submit to him as Lord? For those that do not submit to his authority, they're thrown out. The vineyard belongs to those who do. His kingdom belongs to those who live with him as their king. To them, he's not just the son of David. He is the son of God. Rejoice and be glad. This is a day that he's made for those that, that know who he is. If you go against the cornerstone, you will break. But if you stand on the rock of salvation, you will live. We know who he is. He is the Lord. Blessed is the king. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Lord, that's a lot of information. I know that uh, taking it in is going to take some time to process, but we hope that what ultimately is reckoned in our minds is that the authority of Jesus is the authority of God. And we pray, Lord, that there would be no other power to which we submit. Allow us, Lord, to know exactly who you are and to marvel at that truth that the King of Kings would call us 
to be part of his kingdom. It's amazing, Lord, that you would, that you'd pay attention to people like us. It's marvelous in our eyes. We rejoice and we're glad in it. Save us, we pray. We look to you and we just hope that as, as a church, we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what happens here is not just a people who agree with the stories, but a people who repent of their sins and trust completely in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we yield to your authority joyfully, knowing that it leads us to a far better destiny, to true blessing. Help us to understand it, Lord, and help us to communicate it to those around us that many would be saved. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.